Let's just stay in a, a posture of worship. Let's just exalt the Lord together. Just in your heart, in your mind, just place Jesus on the throne. Imagine and picture him there, high and lifted up above all things. And that in our hearts, we gather together, exalting him. I want you just to think about the many places in your life that you could give him praise and glory. And then just, just in your heart, just praise him and thank him for who he is and what he's done. Father, we declare that you are worthy. You are worthy of it all. Everything that happens here in this place, every note that's played, every song that's sung, every word that's spoken, Father, you deserve the glory and the honor and the praise. So we come together as a church. We exalt you. We lift you up. Thank you, God, for the goodness that you display, that you pour into our lives each and every day. Father, we could not do all of this without you. So we posture ourselves in a place of dependence, of need. We humble ourselves before you. We ask for your wisdom and your strength to come upon our lives to give us wisdom and strength we need to represent you in this world. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to your word. God, may your word be living and active in our hearts today. Thank you, Lord, for the precious truth that you have entrusted to us. So we exalt you, we lift you up. We do so together as a church in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, uh, good job, guys. Oh, thanks for the table. I better actually get my stuff. Hold on, pause. I left all my stuff down here. Can't go very far without this. All right, if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Psalm 51. We're starting a brand new message series today entitled Great Prayers of the Bible. But before we do that, I need to, uh, I need to put you in a little pastoral headlock, Okay. So as you guys know, uh, Ken was up here, he did the little host spot, and he mentioned that uh, we have our vacation Bible school that uh, is coming up in just a few weeks. And, uh, and RBBS is one of the, the best, funnest, and most impactful things we do all year. We have, we have roughly between 250 and 350 kids that will come through our doors 
on uh, that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night, many of those kids are, uh, are not church kids. For some of those kids, this will be the only week in their life that they will hear the name of Jesus spoken, not in a curse uh, word or in a defamatory way, but they actually hear it in the context of worship and that God cares about them and loves them. So what we do here is such an important thing, but we cannot do it without volunteers. To, uh, to take care of 300 to, to 350 kids, it takes roughly about 200 volunteers. And I was told by our, uh, our VBS team that we were just running a little behind on volunteers. I said, well, why don't I take care of that? I'm going to put people in the, the pastoral headlock, and we'll just see if we can stir up some volunteers in our services today. Now, what I'd like to ask you to do, and I, and I know this is, how many of you guys have ever used QR codes? I know you guys, you know, when we mentioned this, but would you all get out your phones? This is okay. You can actually get your phone out during the service. Would you all just do this? I, I totally am, am playing you here. I'm putting you in the squeeze. But now I'm not saying you have to sign up. I just want you to get to the sign up page. I want you to know just how easy it is to do this. If you have your phone, all you have to do is open up your, phone, or your, uh, your camera. And we all take camera pictures, right? You all know how to take the, a picture of something on the screen. So if you open up your camera, I'm taking a picture right now. I'm going to find out who's actually got their phones out. I'm going to snap, snap. But if you point it up at that, that, uh, that screen, that QR code, it, all you have to do is kind of zoom in on that QR code. Once it gets there, like I just, I just went to it. It should like put a little box around it or give you an option. If you tap your screen, it'll take you right to the VBS volunteer page. How many of you guys see that? You guys, did you guys see how easy that was? Now, if you want to take the next two or three minutes of my message filling out that volunteer uh, page, I am totally down with that. So, uh, but I just would love you, uh, love for you to know that we need you. We can't do this without you. Uh, we want to serve these kids well. We want to help them understand just how important they are to God. And, uh, and you could be a part of that. Now, sometimes people go, well, I can't volunteer because, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a good teacher. I would never be a good teacher. I don't, the, the assumption is the only thing I would have to do is like be a teacher in a class. Actually, there are, there are probably 15 to 30 different tasks and jobs. Some of it is, you know, uh, just managing security, uh, keeping kids on the property. Some of it's developing food, putting uh, out crafts, uh, helping direct uh, games. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that you could do over the course of the VBS and uh, serve meals, clean up, set up. I mean, I'm telling you. So don't think that there's only one thing you can do. We'd love to help you find a place where you could just serve and, uh, and enjoy that. So please, if you would, jump in and sign up. It's super easy. It's not hard. And, uh, and we're, we're running into crunch time in terms of putting our team together. Because when you do volunteer, we want to just be able to train you, prepare you, help you know exactly uh, what you're going to do and how you can do it well. So those, uh, those windows are, are quickly coming. So please, please sign up. See, the, the pastoral headlock wasn't that bad, was it? I wasn't too rough on you. 
All right. Well, okay. So if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is uh, the first prayer we're going to look at in this series that we're going to do over the summer called Great Prayers of the Bible. At the beginning of this year, we did a series called House of Prayer, where we really cast a vision for our church that as a church, I, I really believe that God wants us to grow in this thing called prayer. To, to cultivate that atmosphere of prayer. And, and we talked about in that series that prayer in, in its very simple form is just simply a connection point with God. It's where, where our lives and God's life meet. And so we've been trying to press that into the structure of our church. We want you to uh, press that into the, the framework of your family. We want you to press that into the framework of your life. We, we did that series early on. We've kind of done a, a couple other things after Easter now. But now we're going to press back into prayer over the course of the summer. And we're going to do so by taking a look at lots of different prayers throughout the Bible. Now, sometimes for us, the most of the time when we think about prayer, we think about it in a, uh, well, our, our, our concept of prayer is maybe we pray before we eat or we pray before bed. We pray with our kids. We pray when we have certain needs. But the reality is, biblically, prayer has a almost every part of our life implication. And when you take a look at the great prayers of the Bible, you'll find that there's prayers of, of repentance, like we're going to take a look at today. There's prayers of dependence, prayers of need, prayers of dedication, prayers of commitment. There's kind of general format of, of prayers. There's prayers of, of desperation when, we're our, when we need God to show up and we have no other hope. There's lots of, there's prayers actually that are specifically for our nation and for the culture that we're living in. We're going to take a look at a lot of those prayers over the course of the summer. And so my hope and prayer is that we'll see prayer as something that influences every part of our life, not just, you know, before bed or before meals. We'll see the importance of prayer and engaging in it uh, as we study these prayers this summer. If, uh, if you take a look at Psalm 51, the very first verse there is, well, hold the power button to get started. Uh-oh. Now we're back on. It says, to the choir master. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now this is, this is giving us context of what we are about to read. This psalm is kind of an intimate view into an experience in David's life that probably was one of the most traumatic one of the most life-altering, one of the probably the darkest periods in David's life. And so to fully understand the context of this passage, we have to kind of step back into the story of David. David was a good king. He was a good king over Israel. In fact, in Acts, it talks about how David was a man after God's own heart and he'd do everything that God wanted him to do. 
This was the, the testimony over David's life. He was a good guy. But he wasn't perfect. In fact, he failed miserably. And, in, and, and not just a tiny little failure, in massive, life-altering ways. This prophet, you know, Nathan, confronted David on something that had happened that David had allowed into his life. And we see this picture in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. David was to go into battle. (coughs) Sorry, cough right in the mic. David was to go into battle, and what ultimately happens is he decides not to. He doesn't go. He sends his army, and he stays home. And while he's at home, he goes up on his rooftop, and as he's kind of wandering around up there, he notices a woman bathing. It happens to be this woman, Bathsheba. She was someone else's wife. But in that moment, David kind of gets captivated by lust. The arrogance of the throne, he kind of thinks, oh, I'm the king. I should be able to have her. I want her. So he calls for her, brings her into the palace, and then he commits adultery with her. He sends her away, thinking probably he, he, you know, gratified the, the desires of his flesh and You know, he's the king, and he could probably keep it under wraps. No one will know. But then a few weeks later, he gets a little message from Bathsheba, I'm pregnant. Now, this is a problem because Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was in the military, and he was deployed. And all of a sudden, now David knew that if Bathsheba's pregnant, then we've got a problem Everyone's going to know what happened and whose that child is. So now I've got to cover this up. He tries several different things, none of which work. He tries to call her husband back from the army. He won't go home because he wants to be honorable to the other fellow soldiers that they didn't get to go home. So he doesn't return to his wife. He sleeps out in the, the courtyard there of the kingdom. So ultimately, David devises a scheme where Uriah dies. He sends Uriah to the front lines of the battle. He has the the commander pull back the forces while the fighting is going crazy and Uriah is slain. And then David steps in uh, when, when Uriah, the news about Uriah is told to Bathsheba. She grieves and mourns. And then David steps in as kind of this compassionate king and takes her as his wife um, and then kind of thinks he's got it all covered up. He's committed adultery. He's now deceived multiple people. He now is actually committed murder. He had this, you know, guy killed to cover up his sin. You can imagine the kind of guilt that David was living with and the kind of fear that David was living with, knowing that this 
this grievous act of, of sinfulness was on his account. And then we're going to, we're just going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Actually, if I, I'll just read the last verse of chapter 11. And it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David's, David's thinking he's probably pulled this off and he's hidden it from everybody. But who has he not hidden it from? Here's the thing about sin, especially hidden sin. We often think that we can hide it from others. We think that no one knows. And yet, there's no way you can hide it from God. I remember listening to a a speaker talk one time. He said, it's amazing to me that men will do what men will do in the presence of God and God alone that they would never do in the presence of other people. And he was speaking specifically about internet pornography. He said, trust me, guys. God knows. He's there. But you think that you can pull this, you know, just because your wife or or friends, you know, you'd never do that in public. You'd never do that around other people. But for some reason, we're okay doing that in the presence of God and God alone. It was a challenging thought. David here feels like I probably, you know, I'm in the clear now. But he definitely was not in the clear. Because why? Because what he did was known to God and it was displeasing to the Lord. And so verse verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his his morsels and drink from its cup and lie in its arms, lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flocks or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Okay, so we get the story here. Nathan shows up before King David. And he has a story to tell. There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has plenty. He has all kinds of flocks and herds, and he's got abundance. The poor man barely has anything. And with the very little that he has, he goes and buys a sheep, and he cares for that sheep like it's one of his own daughters. Raises it up in the family cares for it, lets it eat out of its plate, drink out of his cup, sleep in his bed at night. This is a precious, precious sheep. But when a guest comes, which would be customary in their culture, if a guest would come, you'd prepare a meal for him. And so 
This rich man didn't want to spend his flocks and his herds to serve his guest. So he sends his servant. They snatch this poor man's precious lamb. And they slaughter it and kill it and serve it at his own pleasure. How does that story set with you? It kind of develops a little bit of rage in us. It's unfair. How could, be, how could someone be so uncaring, so thoughtless, so uncompassionate, so selfish? And that, that same feeling that's in our heart when we hear this story is the same feeling that rises up in David. And so it says David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And what does it say? And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David recognizes right away what, is, what was done needs to, be, needs to be corrected. The person that does this deserves a swift and just penalty, a punishment. And the next words out of Nathan's mouth must have struck like a two-by-four between the eyes for David. Nathan says to David, you are the man. Listen to what the Lord then has to say. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of, his, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now that's a harsh judgment, isn't it? God brings truth to David's eyes. What David thought he could pull off in secret, God fully was aware of and was not about to allow David to continue on in this path. This would have destroyed David's soul. I don't know if you've ever lived with a lie, lived with a secret area of hidden sin, but guys, I'm telling you, it's horrible. You're terrified that anyone might find out. At any given time, you might be exposed. What if people really knew the truth? 
David had to live with that each and every day. It was destroyed, it was like a cancer, slowly destroying his soul. But not only that, but if David at all got the idea that he could actually act this way and there were no repercussions, what could he have done? He could have done even more damage, not only to himself, but to his family and to the nation. God cared enough to bring a stiff rebuke to David to say, look, I know what you've done. And I cannot let this stand. So what do you do when you're confronted with the truth? What's your posture when the word of God comes to you and puts his finger on that thing in your life that isn't right, that needs to change? What happens When you're harboring that bitterness, but the Lord speaks and says, that bitterness is not right. It needs to go. What's your response? Do you know what I typically do when sometimes I'm confronted in those areas that I don't want to let go of or I try to keep hidden? Well, a lot of times, if I look back in my past, I've tried to justify myself. I try to rationalize this action as being, oh, it's not that big a deal, or it's it's not that, that, uh, that big of a sin, or it's not really hurting anyone. I remember sitting with a young man who told me one time, he said, Corey, he was struggling with an area of sexual sin. And he said, Corey, my sexual urges are just stronger than everyone else's. And I said, brother, you are deceiving yourself. He said, no, 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 man, I'm serious. I'm serious. I just have stronger urges than everybody else. And I said, are you even listening to yourself? Listen to yourself. How do you know what the urges of everyone else actually are? You don't. You're just believing a lie to justify yourself. To make this seem like you're a victim, that you you can't overcome this. But here's what I know. The Bible says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. It means there's nothing that you're experiencing that is greater than your ability to overcome in Christ. Nothing. Don't lie to yourself. Don't justify it. We can't allow ourselves to do that. Oftentimes, we'll make excuses for ourselves, and what an excuse is is just the skin of reason stuffed with a lie. No excuses. And notice what also David uh, could have done. He could have blamed someone. He could have blamed Bathsheba, right? Well, she was the one out, you know, bathing on her roof in the middle of the day. I mean, I am a man, so, you know, what am I supposed to do? But that is not how David responds. God comes to him with the truth, exposes him completely in front of everyone, and you'd think that the king of all people would want to do what? Hide, divert, spin, twist, right? Just look at our politicians when they're exposed for their improprieties and their ungodliness. What do they do? I mean, just go back and look. 
It's always a little bit of spin. It's a little bit of denial. It's a little justification. When was the last time we had a leader that had the moral courage to stand up and say, I was wrong, I have sinned? But that's exactly what David does as king. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is where genuine repentance starts. We come face to face with the truth of our own depravity, of our own sinfulness, of our own failures. And we don't justify it. We don't argue with it. We don't excuse it. We don't blame others. We do as David did. We own it. We acknowledge it. And we confess it. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces it finds mercy. If you try to heal, uh, conceal your sin, hide from it, it is not the pathway to blessing. And those of you who have lived with secret sin in your life know that it's no good. But if you'll confess it and you'll renounce it, guess what you'll find? Mercy. And that's exactly what David finds before the Lord. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. There were consequences, right? So now you have the context of Psalm 51. I'm sorry we had to spend a good chunk of, uh, of this message on the front end giving you the context, but you won't fully understand the prayer of David in repentance unless you understood the context in which he's speaking this. The king of all the nation is getting called out for adultery and murder in front of everyone. He could have acted a lot of different ways, but he didn't. He humbled himself, acknowledged his sin, and confessed it before the Lord. And the Lord was gracious and poured out mercy upon his life. Think about your area of greatest embarrassment, your greatest failure. How many of you guys would want to uh, write your prayer and then give it to the choir master to write a song about so that the whole nation can sing about your failure. Well, that's exactly what David does. It's fascinating to me. To the choir master, a psalm of David, all about his greatest failure. But here is his prayer. I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go through it kind of really quickly. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, and the inward being, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. A prayer of repentance, repenting of his deepest, darkest, biggest failure, being exposed in front of everyone, but he navigates it not not politically. He navigates this before the Lord. Notice he starts here by saying, have mercy on me. Again, you notice here, there is no blame. There is no justification. He doesn't try to excuse it. He doesn't say, oh, but they hurt me. Oh, they did this to me. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. He comes to God and recognizes, I am in deep trouble and there's only one place that I can be rescued. It's at the hand of Almighty God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. You see, it's in the midst of his greatest failure that David remembers the steadfast love, the steadfast goodness of the God over his life. What is often a temptation in our greatest failures is to think that God will hate us. He'll never forgive us. He could never redeem that situation. He could never overcome that situation. It's too big. It's too dark. It's too much of a failure. And so I don't bring it to God. I hide from it. I don't navigate this uh, with the Lord. I pretend as if it's, it's impossible to deal with because I don't have a confidence in the goodness of God. Guys, let me tell you, I think this, this, uh, this psalm is in the Scripture so that you and I will know. <laughs> I don't know any of us that have had a guy killed to cover up a, an adultery. I don't know anybody, any of us in that room has got kind of such a grievous sin as that. And if David can find mercy from the good and loving God, over his failure, 
that means that you and I can find grace and mercy from God in our greatest need. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. When he gets to verse 3, what does he say? For I know my sin. For I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Isn't this exactly how it is when we live with secret sin in our life? We know it's there. We can't escape it. It haunts us. You can imagine how David was constantly wondering which servant would possibly know. What's the rumor? What are they talking about? What if someone said something? What if Bathsheba let this out? What am I going to do to try to cover up my tracks? And then when it's found out she's pregnant, now what do I do? And the, and the anxiety and the fear. Whoever conceals his sin does not prosper, right? David here acknowledges my sin is always in front of me. This haunts me. It ruins my life. It destroys me. I want to get rid of this. No matter how hard he tried to hide, he couldn't. Then he says this, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now at first, I, I, I looked at this and I'm like, holy cow. David has hurt a ton of people in his actions. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his family and his wives. He sinned against the whole nation by being improper and ungodly and immoral. But David here acknowledges he understands ultimately where his heart was. That this ultimately was an act of rebellion. An act of rebellion against Yahweh, God. He knew what was right. He knew what was right. And he chose to do something else. It's interesting that the story that was told by Nathan the prophet about the rich man and the poor man, anytime you take a look at a parable, you always kind of got to figure out who the characters are. Who is the rich man, right? Nathan says, you're the man. You're that rich man. You're the rich man in the story. But who is the poor man in the story? God. You see, Uriah, Bathsheba, the nation, they were all that precious lamb of God, precious to the Lord. And David, in his arrogance and his selfishness, violated all of those individuals, ultimately dishonoring God. And so David in his prayer goes, it's against you that I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When you harbor sinful actions, when you hide from it, when you commit sinful actions, but when you hide from it and, and harbor it and try to 
conceal it. Ultimately, your rebellion is against God. It's not against anyone else. It's against God and God alone. And then says, well, you're justified, right? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, verse 5 or verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David here says, whatever your judgment is, I deserve it. I know a lot of people who would only confess that area of sinfulness if they could guarantee that it wouldn't turn out bad for them on the other side. I will only come to God if he kind of just makes it as if it never happened and removes all the consequences and the penalties of that sinfulness. Well, guys, God didn't remove the consequences from David. David still confessed and renounced and got right. God And David said, look, you're right. Whatever you pronounce upon me, I deserve it. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. At first when I, thought, when I read this, I thought David was kind of bringing a justification into the place. You know, like, well, I am only human. I was born into sin. I have this sin nature. But what I think David actually is doing is actually acknowledging in his own heart that he knew he was sinful. He just didn't allow that to become a big enough issue for him that would cause him to uh, be more wary about the temptation that he was going to face. I wrote here in my notes that David, in a lot of ways, was saying, my nature is sinful, and had I been more aware of this and more present about this, I would have been more diligent against temptation. But he wasn't. He let his guard down. And ultimately, it was why he fell into sin. Behold, verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the most being. You teach me wisdom in the secret place. David says, God, you want truth at every part of me. It should challenge us with the question, are you being honest with God in your life? Are you being honest with God? I can tell you right now, in this room today, there are individuals that have things in their life that they have yet to bring to the Lord, and you are harboring a secret sin. The Lord's putting His finger on that stuff today. I know it. And he's inviting you not to conceal it any longer, but to do what? To confess and renounce it. To have the courage of David that says, I have sinned before the Lord. I am not going to continue down this path. I'm I'm going to be honest and truthful. Because why? Because God desires truth in the inmost being. That's what God desires for me. It's the pathway of life. It's wisdom. So what do we do when we have that? Well, then verses 7 through 12 give us the pathway. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. 
What is David's request? I come, I confess, and now I'm before you, but I can't clean myself. I can't redeem me. I can't fix this problem. I can't take it away, but I am standing before you because I am confident you're the only one who can. You're the only one who can take beauty out of the mess or make beauty out of the mess of my life. In fact, David even says that I am trusting that in this situation, if I will bring this to you and I will trust it, as much as it's hurt me, as much as I've failed, as much as it's embarrassing to me, if I bring this to you, guess what I believe? I believe that transgressors will then what? Know your ways and sinners will return to you. Somehow, the story of my mess and my failure, God, you can make that a redemptive thing. And you can use that in the lives of people. And I'm, so I'm going to trust you with it. Even my greatest failure, I'm trusting it in your hand. You cleanse me. You wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Right? Restore joy into my soul, into my life. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Notice one of the chief things that David was concerned about was losing this vital, vibrant relationship with God. A relationship with God mattered to David. It wasn't cast me not out of the throne. It wasn't cast me not out of, out of my family relationships or my place of prominence or, or protect my, my image or prestige in the, in the nation. The most important thing for David was, I want to be right with you. Don't remove your Holy Spirit. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. I'm going to have the band come out. I'm just going to close with a final prayer. But remember Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. With every head bowed and eye closed, I'd like to just invite you over the course of this message, maybe the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart about areas of secret sin. Let me challenge you not to leave this place today without confessing and renouncing that area, bringing it to God, asking Him for the grace and mercy that only He can give, and following David's pathway of repentance, of humbling himself in honesty and truth. Let us be right with God. So, Father, we come to you with humble hearts. Confess our failures. Confess our need. Have mercy on us, O oh God.
cleanse us of our sin. Wash us so that we might be white as snow. Only the blood of Christ can do this. So we pray, Father, for your grace and mercy to cover those areas that we so desperately need of you. So, Father, we pray as David prayed, created me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within us. We trust you, O God, Commit all of this into your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we close?